Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. This is episode 35, originally recorded live on December 2nd, 2011. What will 2012 look like for Israel as its neighbors emerge from a tumultuous year? Rabbi Shalom takes a look at Israel and Palestine in an effort to make sense of an ever-changing landscape. Podcast listener, you may be interested in joining Kol Hadash and other Society for Humanistic Judaism member communities for the International Institute for Secular Humanistic Judaism 2012 Colloquium. The topic is half-Jewish, the heirs of intermarriage. The colloquium is being held on the campus of Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois from April 20th through the 22nd. More information, including links to registration, can be found on our website, kolhadash.com. In Chicago it said, and if you don't like the weather, just wait a few minutes and things will change. In Israel, it could be said, if you don't like the current topic, the current issue, the current crisis, just wait a few minutes and things will change. I was thinking this week of what I should talk about to update you on what's been going on in Israel recently. And I came up with about 25 different topics <laughs> that I could have talked about that were all of interest in some way or another. Instead of the Torah portion of the week, it could be the Israeli crisis, the Israeli issue of the week. What should I talk about? Well, I could talk about, in March, the President of the State of Israel was sentenced to seven years in prison for rape and sexual harassment. I could talk about another Israeli winning a Nobel Prize. It's time for chemistry, for uh, developing a theory of what are called quasi-crystals. It's a little beyond me, but in fact, when he first proposed this theory, he was told to go back and read the intro textbook because the intro textbook said this could not happen. And yet, his experience proved that he was right and the intro textbook was wrong. I could talk about a battle going on right now in the city of Jerusalem over advertising. Now, you wouldn't think this is a major issue, except the issue is what images are being used in advertising. In fact, it turns out that in many places, women's faces women's figures. Women entirely are vanishing from the ads. Even the same company's ads in Tel Aviv or in Haifa, where they would have a family together in Jerusalem, seem to show, by some odd coincidence, only men. Why? Well, some ads that have shown women have been defaced by people who assume that this is immodest. I could talk about the deal made to release Gilad Shalit, the Israeli soldier who was captured by Hamas in the Gaza Strip, uh, one of the causes for the Gaza incursion some years ago, and yet he remained a prisoner for several years, and he was finally released in a deal that also released a number of Palestinians, some of whom were in prison for relatively minor crimes, and some of whom were in prison for very major crimes including planning terrorist bombings of a pizza parlor in Sparrows in Jerusalem and other heinous acts. We could talk about the massive protests that took over Israeli cities this summer. It began, actually, of all things, with a boycott of cottage cheese. Now, we don't think of cottage cheese as a major industry in this country. It was a major cause. <laughs> but in, 
the cottage industry, yes. Okay. Uh, but in uh, Israel, it's a staple of the diet. It's part of at least two, if not three, meals a day. And, uh, it, and there are only two or three dairy companies in Israel that operate almost on a cartel basis and keep prices artificially high. And people were objecting to that. So there were massive kind of cheese protests in Israel. But even more so were the massive protests taking place a couple months later that basically occupied Tel Aviv. There's a beautiful boulevard called Stevot uh, Rothschild, the Fields of Rothschild, the Rothschild Boulevard, where it's basically an urban park that's the median of a major street. But there are, uh, there's benches and trees and a walk path in the middle for strollers, and it's really a wonderful space. But it was taken over by tents. It's sort of the preoccupy, occupy period. I guess you, know, you can make a joke about Israelis and occupying things, they have some experience. But, um, but the point was, they were there not only every day, but also at special rallies, and some of them were gigantic. One of the rallies in Tel Aviv brought something like 3% of the population of the country. Well, as a parallel in America, that would be 10 million people at one rally. Now, what were they rallying about? Their major complaint was the cost of living. Rent in Israel, buying a house in Israel, is, compared to the average salary, four times as much as it is in the United States. It's unaffordable for people to buy a condo in Tel Aviv. Watch House Hunters International. And whenever they happen to go to Israel, the prices are through the roof. You'd think they were living in downtown Manhattan. But because the Israeli land authority owns most of the land, and development is slow sometimes, and people want central locations always, the prices are very, very high. But costs for a lot of things are high, and it's very difficult for them to live. And the other objection, prefiguring the Occupy movement, was against the Israeli oligarchs. Because while the cost of living for the middle class is going up and up in Israel, there are also billionaires and billionaire billionaires in Israel who have media empires and industry empires and trading empires, and it seems to be dodging taxes pretty effectively. I could talk about a whole spate of new laws that's come out over the last several months. Laws that, for many, question the democratic basis of the state of Israel. There was a new basic law that was proposed. As you may know, Israel doesn't have a constitution. But it has certain laws that are called basic laws, that define basic rights, obligations, and definitions of the state. A new basic law was proposed that would define Israel as a Jewish state. And what does that mean? Well, for one thing, they wanted to demote Arabic to no longer be one of the national languages, even though it represents 20% of the population. They wanted to declare Jewish law as a major source of legislation and authority. What does that do for women's rights? What does that do for the status of non-Jewish citizens of the state? There was also a, a law that was passed that banned any organization or even individual from calling for a boycott of Israeli products, goods, or services from any territory or the state of Israel itself, which includes the West Bank. So any, let's say, left-wing left -wing Jewish organization that would want to do anything to boycott anything going on in the settlements, including the artists who said they would not perform at performing arts spaces in the West Bank, they would now be subject to a lawsuit from the people whose business was damaged, so to speak, in that setting. And there was even a law passed just recently that limits the amount of funding that non-governmental organizations can receive from overseas sources, which are the source of funding from any left-wing human rights monitoring organization. Well. I could talk about a, rel a relatively radical court case that took place just a month ago 
the Israeli author Yoram Kanyud was declared to be no religion. Now you'd think this isn't a big deal, right? People can do that anytime they want. Well, in Israel, where your personal status is defined by your religion, where on your identity card it says you are Christian or Muslim or Jewish, and that defines where you get married and where you get buried, to be able to be declared no religion is like an emancipation statement from the chief rabbi. And hundreds of people call the court the next day and say, I want to be no religion too. Now, are they anti-Jewish? No. Are they anti-Israel as a Jewish state? No. Kanyuk is a venerable Israeli Zionist author. But they're anti-Orthodox definition of being Jewish. And if this is what it takes to get out from under that thumb, then they'll do it. And the latest battle just erupted this week. You may have seen it on Facebook, you may not have yet. But the Israeli Ministry of Immigrant Absorption has started a new advertising campaign. It's designed to get Israelis living in America to move home. But in doing so, it's sort of insulting American Judaism. So there were three commercials that were put out. There were mostly web commercials, basically, but there are some billboards up in Los Angeles and New York, other places with lots of Israelis. One of the billboard slogans is, before Hanukkah turns into Christmas, it's time to come back to Israel. In other words, if you stay here, you can forget being Jewish. So in one of the commercials, there's a Saba and Safta, grandma and grandpa, are Skyping with their granddaughter. They have a big bright menorah blazing in the background, and they ask the daughter, do you know what holiday is coming up? And she says, Christmas. And they look at each other like, oh no. And then the slogan it says in Hebrew is, the Israelis will stay Israel, they'll continue. But what about the kids? What about the grandkids? In another uh, commercial, there's a man, looks like a Sunday afternoon, he's asleep on the couch, and his kid says, Daddy, 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 and no response from the parent. And then he says, Abba, which means Daddy in Hebrew. And then he responds. And basically the slogan for that one is, before Abba becomes Daddy. <laughs> As if it's so bad that your kid is calling you Daddy. And the third commercial shows a young woman bringing her boyfriend home. It's dark in the room. There are candles. But he thinks it's very romantic. She's in mourning because it's Israel Memorial Day. Yom Hazikaron, remembering the fallen soldiers. And the point there was, they just don't get it. They're never going to get it. Well, predictably, American Jewish organizations are furious. What do you mean we don't get it? What do you mean the grandkids are inevitably going to be doing Christmas? What do you mean it's so bad to say daddy? Instead of how? Now, that's a lot of issues I could go into. And I haven't even talked about issues of terrorism. There was a stabbing attack in a settlement called Itamar where a whole family was killed overnight. There was a school bus that was attacked with a rocket in the south of Israel. Uh, rockets from uh, Gaza itself have been falling periodically. And in fact, the Israeli uh, Iron Dome defense system caught one. It's the first time a short-range rocket has been intercepted by a defense system and it worked at least in that case. And of course, the reprisals and Israeli bombing attacks and revenge of uh, these attacks against Israel. I haven't talked at all about the possible reconciliation agreement between Hamas in Gaza and Fatah in the West Bank, uh, which would have tremendous implications in many directions, in some ways unpredictable implications, because Hamas has said absolutely no negotiations, no compromise, no 
accommodation to Israel. It's a religious tenet of the organization. They were even opposed to the steps of the United Nations because that would implicitly acknowledge Israel. And how is that going to square with Fatah, which has dedicated itself to a two-state solution, which Hamas rejects? Now, what's going to happen? Who knows? I haven't mentioned anything about the Arab Spring. Have you been following anything about this over the last year? I mean, it began in December of 2010 with this Tunisian vendor, but it really exploded in 2011. Well, who would have guessed we would have lost decades of dictatorship in 12 months? Mubarak. In Yemen now, the president has signed an agreement. In Tunisia, in Libya, Gaddafi's gone. I mean, it's, it's really astounding. And what does it mean? There's a nuclear program going on in Iran. And what's that going to mean? And there was that incident at the United Nations in September, where the Palestinians asked for a state. Reminded you of something 70 years ago, 65 years ago, where Israel went to the United Nations and asked for a state. It went to the UN Security Council. They joined UNESCO. United Nations Economic, Social, and Cultural Organization. Israel probably withheld $100 million of taxes that they've collected from the Palestinians. And the Palestinians have let a lot of that United Nations advocacy go, but the Security Council bid is still there. How do you choose just a few of these things to focus on? Well, one of the ways you do it, if you're a smart teacher, is you punt. And you say, which ones do you want to talk about? Which I will do in a minute. But I do want to give you the broader picture and look at three snapshots. One snapshot is what's going on outside of Israel and the Palestinian territories. The second is a snapshot of what's going on between Israel and the Palestinians. And the third is within Israel itself. And then certainly open up to your thoughts, comments, ideas, or questions about what's been happening. Is the Arab Spring good or bad? Well, we've seen with the recent electoral results in Egypt, preliminary because they haven't yet released the official results, the Muslim Brotherhood and, even more, and an even more radical Islamist group seem to have been very successful. Now, this is the first of three rounds of voting to elect this initial parliament, so we don't know what the other rounds are going to show. Although, from my understanding, these were largely neighborhoods in Cairo and other relatively urban places. I can only imagine that the countryside is less secular and liberal than the urban settings. Now, on the other hand, Iran uh, may have a declining influence if Syria falls, because the sect of Bashar al-Assad and his family is a Shiite sect, it's, an, it's called the Alawites, but the majority of Syria is Sunni, and may not look as kindly on a collaboration with Iran. In fact, I read recently one of the opposition leaders in Syria said, if we take power, there won't be a connection with Iran anymore. Well, that, that would be very good for Israel between um, Iranian uh, bluster and Iranian literal supply of missiles to Hezbollah in the south of Lebanon, breaking that supply chain would be very, very good. Of course, it doesn't mean that Syria is going to be a kumbaya Western democracy that's going to love Israel either. What will happen in Yemen? Well, when the president leaves, I'll believe it. Because he's been saying he's going to leave. He, said he's, he finally signed the agreement, but I don't know that he's fully left the country yet, which he'll need to do ultimately. And uh, they claim the new prime minister is going to be a combinationist. Again, we'll see. Same with Tunisia and the elections there. Libya, they've been making a lot of noise. that doesn't always sound good about Sharia as a major source of law. 
and many liberal Democrats are nervous there too. But I have to say, for all of the doom and gloom of what will happen in the Middle East now that democracy in some form of election is showing up, that you have to pick your poison. We've tried the uh, pro-West dictator. Didn't work. Didn't change the popular attitude. Didn't change the underlying issues. It just stamped them out. The Muslim Brotherhood was outlawed but tolerated for a period. Under Nasser, he was totally outlawed. That was the strong man who was opposed to the West. That didn't work either. You know, if the goal is to improve the attitude toward the West of the general population in the area, you have a couple options. You can try the strong-arm dictator who doesn't like the West, and then, then maybe just in sort of the teenage rebellion, they will like the West, and a react that didn't work. You can try the strong-arm dictator who likes the West, who has a peace treaty with Israel, like Mubarak. Well, that didn't work either. So now, maybe you've got to try number three, which is a relatively free and open democratic system. Initially, of course, what's going to be expressed is hostility and anger, the kind of thing that was tamped down under Mubarak or was selectively allowed to come out. Well, we've had pipeline attacks on the natural gas pipeline between Egypt and Israel multiple times. We've had a lot of terrible rhetoric. The Israeli embassy was almost, well, was attacked and basically destroyed and the Israeli diplomats almost lynched, in effect. In fact, uh, it was Barack Obama's direct phone call to the military government that made the commanders go in and save them. Otherwise, they were deep duty. Well, in this case, is it going to be better without democracy? I don't know. Is it going to be better with democracy? I don't know either. But I've got to hope that that open airing of ideas, that free communication with the outside world, that experience of dialogue that is part of democracy, the experience of compromise that you have to undergo when now you're not an opposition group that can dream whatever it wants, but you're a practical parliamentary bloc that has to make compromises, that kind of realism, hopefully, will lead to some kind of accommodation that you would not have seen under dictatorship. The Iranian nuclear program. What have we seen lately? We've seen a lot of sabotage. Now, it may be called an accident from time to time, but when the computers crashed, that was most likely a virus. And not a you know, harmless virus they picked up from a memory stick. Scientists have died, sometimes mysteriously, sometimes not so mysteriously. There was an explosion at an Iranian missile base. Were they sloppy? And more recently, there may have been an explosion in Isfahan, which is the major center of the Iranian nuclear plant. Accident? Twice in a month? Now, what would happen if Iran did develop a nuclear weapon? We have to look at the possibilities. Most likely going to be the case in the next five years, no matter what sabotage you can do. You can have two possible results. One is a kind of Cold War stability. They don't like each other without nuclear weapons. They don't like each other with nuclear weapons. But neither side is crazy enough to use mutually assured destruction, right? Kept the world safe for 50 years. Except, we could have the opposite reaction of increased belligerence. Well, you have one, well, we have one too. We're not sure to you anymore. What happened shortly after the Soviet Union developed a nuclear bomb? The Korean War. Not an accident. 
or, and we have to face this possibility, it may be that the mullahs in Iran are more apocalyptically disastrous than we think. And if that's the case, and they make real noise about dirty bombs, about who knows what else, then everything's off the table. Who knows what's going to happen? And the third outside issue is the United Nations. What's been happening? Well, there's been a lot of lobbying going on, a lot of discussion. There were very dramatic speeches given at the UN. And now it goes to negotiations. And it looks like the Palestinian initiative will fail at the Security Council without a United States veto. It had to get two-thirds to qualify as a nation-state to be recognized by the UN. One of the major dilemmas, of course, is one of the criteria of the UN to become a state is to have clear and recognized borders. That's what's up in the air. Do they have language? Sure. Do they have some governing institutions? Do they have a police force? Yes. Do they have borders? No. So, we'll see. But most likely, the United States will not have to use its veto for that, as it has in the past, for uh, settlement condemnation and other issues. Um, there are enough nations that don't support this unilateral bid that it will not be successful. <coughs> and it certainly was slowed down by Israeli financial pressure, withholding $100 million of tax receipts that have been collected for the PA, but held by Israel. Well, they couldn't pay anybody, and that's puts the PA on the verge of collapse. As we'll see, though, that has its own challenges that Israel may not contemplate. And the United States has put forth this diplomatic pressure, even if Obama complains about it to Nicolas Sarkozy with the microphones open. Uh, nevertheless, the uh, United States diplomatic support of Israel continues in the UN. So the United uh, Nations will not recognize Palestine as a state, but they will certainly consider further initiatives along that direction. One of the fears of the Israelis was, what if they join the International Criminal Court? Now, they can bring a suit that Israel can't ignore. Now, what's happening between Israel and the Palestinians? This month, I've been reading a book by Tom Segev, who's an Israeli journalist and scholar. It's called 1967, Israel, the War, and the Year that Transformed the Middle East. And what I've been struck in reading this book about the lead up to the 67 war, the events and the aftermath, is how many of the very same issues that we're dealing with today were there right from the very beginning. How much land should we keep? What should we give back? What should we do about the demographics of so many Arabs that we've now taken possession of? How will that affect the composition of the state? Some people were emotionally attached to reclaiming the heartland of the Jewish people, the West Bank of Judea and Samaria, where the Jewish people began. Others said, I came here to be in a Jewish majority state, and if we don't give it back, we won't be. What do we do with Jerusalem? You know, it was within, within a few months that the neighborhood around the Western Wall was cleared to create that beautiful plaza, because they knew thousands of people would come to see it. And the residents there, well, moving on. Even the issues of occupation were the case from the very beginning. What do you do with the schools? It's June, school vacation, but the schools are going up in the fall. What textbooks do you use? Jordanian textbooks? Israeli Arab textbooks? Real dilemmas. They even printed occupation currency that they never used. And there are a few bills left 
that somebody saved in a folder because they destroyed it. They spent all this money to get them designed and printed and then destroyed it because they decided not to use it. It would seem too permanent. It would seem too colonial. They didn't want to look that way. Now, the fact that all these issues are there, I wonder you could say, well, we've had a lot of time to think about it. But it's very depressing. We've been thinking about the same issues for 44 years, and we st we're still thinking about the same issues. There's no new solutions out there. And honestly, in the last year, there has not been a lot of hard work in the right direction. The Israeli Attorney General is trying to find ways to post-facto legalize settlements built illegally, even by Israeli law. Palestinians are not talking to the Israelis. They demand a settlement freeze. It's not going to happen. So either you're not going to talk, and they're going to build, or you're going to talk, and they're going to build. It may be the case that Salam Fayyad, uh, the, president, the uh, Prime Minister of the West Bank, who is a technocrat and very successful, and even Mahmoud Abbas are just running out of gas. They're exhausted, they're frustrated, they might throw up their hands. And one of the negotiators, Saeed Barakat, raised the prospect. That's what Israel has been afraid of for the last 15 years. And that is to say, we quit. No more Palestinian authority. Make us citizens. We're just going to stay here. We're not leaving. We're not going anywhere. You want all the land. Make it Israel. Make us citizens. Because if you're a democracy, you can't have millions of people who are living and being born here who aren't citizens. Regularize, you know, this is like the American situation. Regularize our status. Come up with something. But if we live here, and we're born here, and we work here, we've been here for 40 years under your control, we should be citizens. That would be fair. It's an old model called the binational state. One state for Jews and Arabs together. Imagine the size of the parliamentary bloc they would control. They could even be the largest party because of all the splintering of the Jewish party. Well, as radical as that sounds, and from an Israeli perspective, as problematic as that sounds, that's a more realistic possibility than ever. Because the longer this drags out, and the slower things go, they may just say, forget it. It's a radical play. You know, it's the bluff with the paradigms. But they might do And we'd have to see. I, I don't know what would happen in that case. Now what about within Israel? All those issues I raised about the cottage cheese and the laws and being no religion and everything else. What kind of state is Israel going to become? Some see it moving toward more Jewish, even chauvinistically Jewish, and less democratic. But others are pushing back for democratic and Jewish values. As one example, our Israeli rabbinic program training secular luministic rabbis in Israel recently got the use of a Jerusalem municipality building for their classes and for their public programs. Now, they don't have their name on the outside. It's still a Jerusalem municipality building, but they get to use it. They don't pay any rent because it's a public service. This is happening, too, even in Jerusalem. This is happening, too. Some of these legislative initiatives have not succeeded. It was a proposal to radically reorient the Supreme Court. Didn't happen. And then you get court cases like this Yoram Kanyu case where maybe there's a possibility people could just go to the Ministry of Personnel and say, I don't want to be under the control of Jewish religion anymore. Call me no religion. You'd be surprised how many people do. 
Well, there's a lot of issues to think about. Each has their own challenges. And when there's so many challenges, you can get depressed and you can give up. But you can also consider it a mountain to climb. And to those who climb the mountain is the possibility of success. It's a poem by the Israeli poet David Brokeach. La mitzapi matahila ki lahem ha'atid. Ha'umdim mu'achar ve'inam yirtaim ya'alu al-pizgato. We're determined to get the glory. The future is theirs. Whoever stands against the mountain without recoil will ascend its summit. We face the mountain, but if we face it without fear, we can still climb. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.